Uh, good morning. Happy Easter, everyone. I'm Pastor Allen. Glad that you're with us. We've been talking about Jesus for the last two, week, uh, two months, for about eight weeks, and uh, started with his baptism. And we left you all, uh, last week, we left you with Jesus in a tomb. He was tried. He was tortured. He was sentenced to die. The Romans nailed him to a cross, and he died, and they buried him, and that was it. That's where we left you last week. So that's what we're going to pick up this week. Uh, but I want to talk to a special group of you. I know many of you are like me. I call myself a skeptic. And what I mean by that is if you tell me something, my first thought is, I don't believe you. Doesn't matter what it is. Uh, I need more. I need evidence. I need proof. I need some kind of information. I heard a statistic this morning. Somebody said, people throw out those things all the time. I said, I don't believe it. That's what I said this first. <laughs> I'm a skeptic. All right? And some of you are like me, and we're going to find out a lot of these folks in the New Testament were skeptics also. Takes, plays a big part in what we're going to talk about this morning, and that's, of course, that Easter matters. So Jesus is laying in a tomb. They paired his body, put him in a tomb. He's dead. And so he said two things last week, and then we'll, we'll start with the new stuff for today. When your leader's dead... When your leader had given you a hope of a dream that maybe we can get rid of the Romans, have our own, you know, freedom back, there's no more dream to capitalize. There's no more movement to keep moving because the leader is dead. And so, consequently, uh, everybody expected Jesus to do what dead people usually do, right? And that is what? <laughs> Stay dead. All right? Everybody. When Jesus was buried, he had no followers. He had no believers. There was no church. Uh, that was it. Nobody believed. Everybody thought it was the end. So I always like to think about the next day. If you was a Jesus follower for months or years, and now your, your leader's dead, what is Saturday like? Especially for a Jew, and most of them were Jewish, it's the Sabbath. You can't do anything except for go to church, basically. <laughs> and uh, so you're, you're confused. You're, your emotions are going, running wild. This has happened so quickly. Uh, on s the previous Sunday, Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem, and they were hailing him king, and now he's dead? How does that happen? So consequently, when the sun goes down on Saturday, as a Jew, your Sabbath is over. So you need to go back to regular activities and life. So that's where we're going to pick up the story. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. Uh, Saturday evening when the Sabbath ended, Mary Mag, three ladies, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother James and Salome, went out and purchased burial spices because the person you cared about, the person you followed is now dead. So that's what you do. We buy flowers or something today. Uh, purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body, a dead body, correct? Because he's, he is dead. He's been crucified. Uh, the Romans did a good job of what they, were, what they were about or doing. And so when they crucified somebody, they died, right? And so Jesus was definitely dead. So consequently, then the next morning, they bought these spices. So what are you going to do with them? So the next morning, Sunday morning, at sunrise, they went to the tomb. Now, small detail. 
I don't know what they were thinking, or maybe they weren't thinking. They were just thinking, well, we really need to, to do a more proper burial, Jesus. Um, but they're on their way, and then they say, oh, wait a minute. There's this big stone in front of the tomb. Uh, we can't really get in. Now, maybe they're hoping somebody was there to help, or maybe somebody had already been there to help. We don't know. But this is an obvious issue, obvious problem. So when they get there, they look and see, and look up and see that the, to- the tomb, the stone was uh, removed. The very large stone had already been rolled away. Ah, well, good fortune, right? So now we can get in and anoint this Jesus' dead body. Now, interesting thing. The stone isn't moved, wasn't removed so Jesus could get out, right? I was going to find out later that walls are not a problem for Jesus or locked doors. The stone was removed so people could get in. So they get in and they find that the body is gone. And so they assume what? What you and I, a skeptic, would assume somebody took him. Because dead people stay dead. So, three ladies, they run to find the disciples. This is, this is huge. This is a problem. We can't even anoint our, our, our Lord and Master Jesus' body because somebody's stolen him. So they ran, Peter and the other disciples, one who Jesus loved, this is John who's writing this, he often referred to himself, third person, and I think a little arrogantly saying, you know, I'm the one that Jesus really loves, or loves more than everybody else, but anyway, uh, he refers to himself that way, and so she said, they, who are they? We don't know who they are, somebody has taken his body, the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So that's the bigger problem. If we can find him, at least we can anoint him or put him back in the tomb. But somebody's taken him. We don't know who and we don't know where this body is. Now, what did the disciples think? Ah, we know what happened. Is that what they thought? No. Luke puts it this way. Sounded like nonsense. They were skeptics. This is silly. Who would take a dead body? So they didn't believe it. They, not that they, he was a lie. They didn't believe that his body had been stolen. Now, again, they had something in common with many of us. They were skeptics. Need to have good, solid proof to believe something. And nobody today really much argues that Jesus was a historical figure. He was a rabbi in, in the first century, our calendar. Uh, I don't think any serious person doubts that Jesus died. The Romans were too good at it. That was their, their next was on the line if that somebody did survive. So nobody argues that Jesus was a person, a real person. Pretty much nobody argues that he was dead. So we all can agree on that. So Peter decides to check things out. Well, these ladies might be hysterical. They might be emotional. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb. I'm going to go check it out. So Peter jumps up and he runs to the tomb to look. Look why? Because it could be pretty serious. Somebody stole Jesus' body. So stooping, he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings. Hmm, that's interesting. They unwrapped him before they took him. And they went, he went home again, wondering what had happened. Who would do this? Who would take the body, much less unwrap it before they stole it? Just run home saying, he's alive, he's alive. Did he? Because Peter is like you and I or many of us, who is a skeptic. 
Dead bodies stay dead. The body's not there. We've got to figure out what happened, but somebody has taken it. So here, this is huge, especially if you're a skeptic. This is huge. They, the New Testament writers, documented what? Their own unbelief. Now, the New Testament, the, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the accounts of Jesus' life, were written 15 years or so later, not 100 years later, but, but not the next day. So if you're sitting down writing this account, <laughs> and uh, we believe Mark's gospel is probably Jesus, Peter's account, and if you're Peter saying, oh, yeah, when I went to the empty tomb and I didn't see the body, I knew what happened. He was resurrected, right? That's the way you and I would write it, kind of uh, editing history. But that's not what they wrote because that's not what happened. And that's why you can trust the New Testament because the people that wrote it were honest people, even to, the, to their own fault. And so they documented, no, that we didn't believe that Jesus was resurrected. We didn't believe that. We thought his body was stolen until they had a better reason to believe something else, right? So the account runs, moves up to Sunday evening. So it's Sunday evening now. And the disciples are meeting behind locked doors. Why? Because they'd killed Jesus, and so now they had the authority to at least lock up, maybe kill his followers. They were known followers, so they were hiding, fearing for their lives behind a locked door. They were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, ah, Jesus was standing there among them. And a normal Jewish greeting is, peace be with you. So he shows up like nothing's happened. Hey, guys, how you doing? Now, what is going to be the reaction of the disciples at this point? Again, we got an honest account. Hey, Jesus, good to see you back. What's the account say? The whole group, not just one or two, the whole group was startled. Whoa, <laughs> this is unexpected. More than startled, they were frightened. Why would they be frightened? Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. This looks like Jesus, but Jesus died, so this must be what? A ghost. <laughs> and Jesus says, hey, guys, why are you frightened? And why are your hearts filled with doubt? And we say, duh. <laughs> uh, you were dead. Now you're standing here, or you appear to be standing here. Now, this is interesting, the word doubt. Doubt is what causes us to fear. We're hoping to get on a plane and go to Israel this week. Pray about that. It's still up in the air, believe it or not. And uh, some people are afraid to fly. In fact, some people won't fly because of why? They doubt that the plane will stay up. So doubt causes fear. Now, this happened many times in Jesus' ministry. Probably the most familiar one is they're in a, disciples are in a boat. Storm comes and the boat starts to fill up with water. So, ah, water in a boat's not a good idea out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. So they are frightened. They wake Jesus up. Jesus is asleep. And his first response is, why are you guys afraid? What are you afraid of? You're doubting that I can handle this situation, correct? And so he said, hey, I got it, guys. Calms the storms. There's no problem. But again, the doubt brings about fear. And for skeptics, it's easy to be, have doubts, right? 
So then he goes and tries to, <laughs> I guess, try to explain, try and fill in the details, try and get them back on track. And he says this to him: When I was with you before, it's just two, day, two or three, three days ago, right? Remember back on Thursday? I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And that's how they describe their Bible. We call it the Old Testament. Made up of the, the law, the prophets, the Psalms. And he says, the stuff written in there, because that's true, is got to happen. Okay? So some of the stuff, or one of the things that are written in there is this. It was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and raise from the dead on the third day. Now, Guys, weren't you listening? I told you this over and over again. You've read it. You've studied the Old Testament. But it's kind of like us, right? We like to hear good news. Somebody's telling us good news. Then they start talking about suffering and especially dying. We kind of check out, right? Oh, get back to the good news stuff. So we've already checked out when it gets to the rise from the dead thing. We're not even thinking about that. We don't even want the suffering and the death part to happen. And so they had heard this, but they hadn't heard it. <laughs> they weren't listening. And he goes on, it's also written, that you would be proclaiming, be proclaimed in this message, proclaimed in the authority of the name to all the nations. And we're proof of that. We got a 10-hour flight to Jerusalem. It's a long ways away, right? <laughs> there are people where? All over this globe, all nations of the world, celebrating this Resurrection of Jesus, we call Easter. It started in Jerusalem, of course. And there was a message to it. There was forgiveness of sins for all who repent. Now, for, forgiveness is a big thing, right? I tell couples when I, my wife and I, when we counsel married couples, she said, if you can't forgive, your marriage is over. <laughs> Every relationship is over, right? Without forgiveness. And we've all heard other people, and other people have heard us, <laughs> So this is a critical component to, to, to a satisfying life. And of course, on my part, it's important for me to repent, admit I'm wrong, apologize, say I'm sorry, make an effort not to do it again in the future. Now, we should forgive everybody. It doesn't matter if they repent or not. This because for our own good. And then he says that something really important. He says, you are, here's the word, witnesses of all these things. It was written here, and I'm the Messiah, and you've seen me, so now you've seen it come true, so now you just need to tell other people. That's what a witness does, right? We've all seen child uh, uh, dramas on TV, right? And if you want to make sure you get the, the, the person convicted, what's the most important thing that you have to have? Eyewitnesses, right? Two or three people said, yeah, I saw that guy shoot that guy. I saw that guy shoot that guy. I saw that guy shoot. Well, okay, basically the, the, case, the case is closed, right? Eyewitnesses, people that actually saw it happen. So there's over a dozen accounts of eyewitnesses in the New Testament of Jesus' resurrection. Ultimately, more than 500 people saw him resurrected. And uh, consequently, we can say this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ created Christianity. That's where it started. Saturday, there was no Christianity. <laughs> Friday, when Jesus was crucified, there was no Christianity. There was no Jesus followers. There's no believers. And it launched the church, which we are a part of 2,000 years later. 
It's not because the Bible says so. It's not because the church says so. It's because of the eyewitness account of people that skeptics like me have a hard time believing, but they have eyewitness accounts. So the reason I believe is because of the witness. Now, there's lots of people in the New Testament that came to believe the most fascinating one to me, and most of you heard me talk about him, is a guy by the name of James. He's Jesus' half-brother. Now, as we read the New Testament, we don't hear a lot about James, but the best thing we can figure out is James didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was. He didn't believe he was the Messiah. He didn't believe he was the Son of God. I have two brothers. There ain't nothing they can do or say to make me believe they're the Messiah. How about you folks with your siblings? And then the resurrection happens in the early church and Peter's the one leader and then James kind of takes over. James, the brother of Jesus. So what happened to change James's mind? Had to be something pretty radical. And James would be as skeptical as anybody. Uh, bro, you were dead, now you're alive? I think I believe you. I, 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 I think I trust what you're saying. So we also say this, the foundation of the Christian faith is an event. It's not a book, it's not a church, not a denomination. It's an event. Extraordinary event, a hard to believe event if you're a skeptic, but it has profound implications. I read the statistics this week, it was mind-boggling to me. In the UK, over 50% of quote-unquote Christians do not believe in the resurrection. <laughs> That's the foundation. You get rid of the foundation, you don't have a building, right? Without a foundation? How can you believe, be a Christian, Christ follower, if you don't believe in the resurrection? Now, Peter's an interesting character, and we're going to spend the rest of the time looking at Peter and something he wrote. Again, Peter was a disciple, close to Jesus, he was a follower, a believer, and then when Jesus gets arrested, he's no longer a believer because you don't arrest the Messiah, and then he denied Jesus three times, and then after the resurrection, he became a believer again. So later on in his life, uh, we don't know exactly what happened to him. Tradition says he was hung, crucified upside down uh, in Rome, may have happened, may not, makes a nice story. But near the end of his life, he writes some letters looking back on, on Jesus, etc. So we're going to just read a couple of verses there and we'll have, have you out of here about, by about noon. Go about your day. So we, we call it First Peter, one of the letters. And it begins by, by saying this. All praise to God the Father. So we have God who is a loving Father and the Lord Jesus Christ his Son. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again. And he had talked to this guy. Jesus talked to this guy, Nicodemus, tried to explain this whole, what we call Christianity thing, is about kind of like being born again. You're physically alive, but you're spiritually dead or separated from God, and you have to have this transformation or, or this new birth to become alive again to God or in relationship to God. So this can happen, this transformation, this being born again can happen because of what? <laughs> Because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, the foundation of our hope of, of, uh, uh, of Christianity, of being forgiven. So now he says, consequently, since Jesus 
rose from the dead. Our God is alive. Now we live with great expectation. Some translations say hope. It's not a verb, hoping. It is a great expectation. Why? Because the tomb was empty. Our God is alive. That's why. That's the only reason we can have a hope. Don't believe in that? There's no hope. We have a priceless inheritance. Inheritance is a cool word. Uh, normally, uh, my kids will inherit whatever I have when I die. I, people inherit that are related or have personal relationship with the person that's given the inheritance, right? Um, I'm not writing any strangers in my will. There has a personal relationship. So that's where those get an inheritance. So those of us that have a personal relationship with God have an inheritance. And it's kept in heaven for you. Peter believed in heaven. Jesus believed in heaven. Peter believed in heaven because the resurrected Jesus had to go somewhere, right? If you have a resurrected body, it has to go somewhere. And so we're promised resurrected bodies so we can go somewhere. And of course, this is a whole different realm, heaven, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. Now, again, this is the heaven thing, the Jesus resurrected thing is hard for a skeptic to believe. But somebody has wrote this, I love this. You can either live life as if nothing's a miracle or live life like everything's a miracle. I don't know about you, but it's probably kind of hard to look at the universe and not see miracles. The fact that the earth is just the right, we got any science teachers in here? <laughs> we got some teachers. You teach history, right? Uh, that the earth is just the right distance from the sun that we, not too hot, not too cold, so we can survive. To me, that's a miracle. So you believe in miracles, one more miracle is just part of the deal, right? So consequently, it says this. You can be truly glad, not some kind of superficial laughing, but truly glad. There's a wonderful joy ahead. You don't need to fear the future. You don't need to fear death even. But listen to this. This is important. Even though you must endure many trials. Well, wait, 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 wait a minute. We're just talking about joy and, <laughs> and, and truly glad. No, we're always talking about bad stuff. Only a little while. What is a little while? Time here on earth. So is there a contradiction? Some people seem to say, think so. People have said this to you, right? Well, I don't believe in a loving God because bad things happen to good people. Is that a contradiction? No, that's not a contradiction. And if you're one of those skeptics, I want you to at least just reconsider this fact this morning. These folks, these disciples, these Jesus followers, they saw the worst thing imaginable happened to the best person they'd ever known. True, right? Scourging, whipping, crucifixion, undeserved, hadn't done anything wrong. Worst thing possible, happened to the best person they'd ever known. So I would just challenge you to reframe your thinking. There's people like Peter who ran from danger after seeing the resurrected Jesus ran toward danger. He was threatened for his life, but he still said, no, 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 you can't change my mind. I've seen him. This Jesus 
is my Lord. He conquered death. I'm not afraid to die. He said, but yeah, we need to talk about that death part a little bit. So a couple of verses down, he says this. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. So many people have empty lives. They just treadmill lives, go to work, raise their kids, live and die. And in reality, it's tough to find purpose and meaning in life, especially with the trials, the difficulties, without an understanding of life, eternal life, and life in relationship with God. Because we can't fix this. Holy God, perfect heaven, I'm a mess up. All of us are screw-ups. We've all done stuff we shouldn't do. I can't fix it. Somebody had to do something for me. Somebody else had to pay the debt for me. And God said, okay, I'll do it for you. I'll send my son to die. So he goes on. He says, it's not paid with mere silver and gold. Lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And if you've been here for our eight weeks, we started there, right? Jesus getting baptized in the Jordan. John says, hey, the spotless Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Nobody knew what he was talking about. Now they did. So consequently, we can know that God is for us. You ever feel like God's out to get you? Don't ever feel that way. God is for us. And the reason I can know that is because Jesus died for us, died for you. Not, not because things always work out, because they certainly don't. And there's enormous power in understanding that, accepting that, believing that. So your life won't be perfect. Your life won't be trouble-free. But your life will be better, and you'll be better at life because you'll be able to handle the, the trials and the difficulties, and you know where your future is and what your future holds. So again, the foundation of Christianity, Christian faith, is an event, an extraordinary event, a hard event to believe if you're a skeptic, with profound implications. Just a couple of minutes here, we'll talk about some, some of the implications. Suffering is not evidence of God's absence. If he let his only son suffer and die, suffering is not, it's life, right? This God we worship is a personal God. You can have a relationship with him. He wants us to call him Father. It's deeply personal, but it's also not private. And that's why we do things like we did last week. We saw in the video, we baptize people. And that's people saying, not privately, but publicly, I believe. What we've been talking about this morning. Also, heaven's real. Again, as a skeptic, it's kind of hard for me to believe, but not really. Because in our souls, there's something that tells us there's more to life than just this, isn't there? And Jesus confirmed it. I love what Dwight L. Moody, a preacher back in 1800s in, in uh, <clears throat> Chicago said. He said, one day you're going to read about my death. He said, don't believe a word of it. At that moment, I'll be more alive than I ever have been. So what's that mean? Forgiveness is available. Forgiveness 
for you and I in our relationship with God, but forgiveness for one another. You and I are free, or we have the capability, we have the ability to forgive anybody of anything because God has forgiven us. And we can love anybody. I, read, I think I read this this morning. <clears throat> we ought to love the unloving because we are unloving. True, isn't it? And lastly, you are loved by Almighty God. You are loved. And Jesus said, this is going to be the mark. This is going to be evidence that what I've taught in my life, in my resurrection especially, is real. The mark's going to be your extraordinary love for one another. That's the evidence. That's the proof. And so consequently, a skeptic like me has given his life to this Jesus for the last 50 years because the evidence is real. I would just encourage you skeptics to reconsider. Let me pray for you. Father God, we thank you so much as you did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. That you loved us unconditionally. You're on our side. You're for us. You're not out to get us. You offer us this gift of salvation. It's free. And for a skeptic like me, it's, it's, that's, that sounds too good to be true. But the logical me thinks it through and says, well, that's the only way it can be true. The evidence is overwhelming. The love, unconditional love is irresistible. We all desire to be loved that way. And God, you, you do. You love us that way. So I want to pray for the skeptics here this morning, the doubters, God, that you would remove all skepticism and doubt. And we'd finally say, yes, I believe. And for most of us, God, hopefully it's a, a reaffirmation of what we believe or claim we believed all along. This life sometimes wears us down. Sometimes the skeptic's talking to us. Oh, maybe that stuff I believe is not really true. Ah, it, it's real. The biggest skeptics <laughs> in Jesus' day believed. So, Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for every life represented here. We pray that they truly call you Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.